sees Lazarus from the dead, sits down next to her and cries with her. And it is that message to all of us that in this time in between, God has not left us alone. He has given us himself, his love, his presence. When I think about scripture, there's a kind of interesting, there are numbers in scripture that, that are significant. The number three is significant, right? So we think of three and we think of Trinity. Number seven is significant. That's Sabbath, really important number in scripture. The number 40. Have you thought about the number 40 in scripture? That 40, when you think of 40, let me see, uh, that would be like Noah and the ark, right? 40 days in this boat with all these animals where it gets really stinky and they're waiting for, you know, for winter to be over so they can somehow open all of the, and let the spring in and the animals out, right? And uh, 40, there's Jesus. Jesus in the time of preparation as he's in the wilderness. 40 days of fasting, preparation. Especially when we think of 40, we especially often think of the people of Israel in the wilderness. They've been freed from Egypt. They are on their way to the promised land. Moses is their leader. And in this time, this time in between, having been freed from Egypt and not yet in the promised land, here they are wandering in the wilderness, but God has not left them alone. God has given them himself. So here they are following God. Here is this, by day there's this cloud, and at night there's this pillar of fire, and there's the tabernacle, and Mount Sinai, there's the presence of God, the presence of God. So God has not left them alone. When he uh, freed them from Egypt, he didn't say, good luck, I'll see you on the other side. He walks with them. He's there with them all along the way. And he's providing for them. So here's the manna from heaven. And they're learning to depend upon God. They're preparing to enter into the promised land. So they receive manna every day. They learn that they are completely dependent upon God, even for their very existence. They're learning to trust God. So as the manna comes, it's just enough for today. Just enough for today. If they take too much, it'll spoil. So they're learning day by day to completely trust and depend upon God. They're being prepared as God's people. So in this time in between, as they're wandering in the wilderness, they're not only thankful for having been delivered and looking forward to what is ahead, they have the presence, the love of God, the provision of God, as God is preparing them as his people. They're learning to be his people, completely dependent upon him, in anticipation of entering into the promised land. Next Wednesday is uh, Ash Wednesday. How many of you are from traditions where you have, in some way, you have observed Lent? All right? Okay, that's maybe 25%. All right? Lent is, okay, next Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. I think it's next Wednesday. Yeah, it's next Wednesday. That's right. All right. Next Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. <laughs> Just checking. All right. And it's a, 
Oh, yeah, how many days is Lent? Oh, 40. <laughs> Look at that. It's 40 days of Lent. And so we start on Ash Wednesday, and it ends on Easter. <laughs> so here is this, this time that we observe every year, this 40 days that's kind of like the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness, right? That they are starting on this journey. There's this imposition of ashes, the cross. Can, there's different ways to interpret that. Certainly it's, there's something that is the beginning. Even when we think about Jesus who left and is coming again, that there's the cross and the resurrection, but there's an anticipation of the final day. Here's the 40 days. There's 40 days of preparation. There's 40 days of preparation. If you will, it's 40 days of wilderness, so that in Lent we are at a time where we're not celebrating, we're wandering in the wilderness. We are fasting during this time. It's wilderness time. But it's always in anticipation of Easter is coming. Similar to, here we are in this time in life, where we are in this in-between time. In between that which has been and that which is to come. This time of wilderness. But God has not left us alone. He has given us himself, his Holy Spirit. We know the love of God, the presence of God. And in this time, we are being prepared to be the people of God who will, in the final day, be with Christ forever. And that preparation is a preparation of holiness. It's a preparation of holiness. Holiness. Holiness is a really interesting word. <coughs> Holiness is God's own word. It's a word that belongs to God. It's a word that describes God. Who God is and God's essential character, all of that is God's holiness. God is holy in purity. God is holy in mercy. God is holy in love. Can you hear the angel singing? <laughs> God is holy in justice. Everything that is in God's essential character is God's holiness. Now this is where it gets really good. There's lots of angels, it's okay. <laughs> this is where it gets really good. This character of God, all that God is in God's essential character, in God's essential nature or character, God's love, God's mercy, God's justice, God's purity, that all of that which is God's character, now by the Spirit of God, God in Christ Jesus through the Spirit, invites us to participate in God's own life. This is pretty big stuff. I mean, if you, uh, if you don't get this yet, if you don't sort of like, if you're not, okay, this is just okay, then you don't understand. This is really big stuff. That we are invited to participate in God's own holy life. In uh, 2 Peter 1 4, it says that we are partakers, you are partakers of the divine nature. That everything that God is in God's purity and love and mercy and justice, God through the Holy Spirit now invites us. Think of, for instance, John 15, there's the vine and the branches, that we're the branches, we're grafted into the vine, that we're invited to participate in God's own life. So that as we are invited into God's life, the Spirit begins to change us and to make us more and more like God, like Jesus. That's why holiness is 
Christ-likeness. The God in Christ through the Spirit is changing us day by day. And as we are being changed, transformed, that the very holy character of God and purity becomes now the purity of the people of God. The very holiness of God and love and mercy and justice becomes now the character of the people of God. So that we are not only just bearing God's name in the world, we are Christians. But now, as the people of God, we bear God's character in the world. So that the whole world ought to be able to look at us and see something about who God is, what God is like. The whole world ought to be able to look at us and see something about what the coming kingdom looks like. Who we are, as we are transformed by the Spirit, is a witness in the world of what the final day will look like. Even now, God is at work in us, preparing us, and we are, we are a demonstration project of the kingdom of God, which will, will come, and even is now. Just a glimpse in us now of what will be fully realized when Jesus returns. Oh, it's a great mission. It's a great thing that God has done to invite us into his own life. But now to be the people of God who bear witness of his character and bear witness of the kingdom in who we are and the way we live. And that character is a character of holy love. You know, those Christians, you just can't stop those Christians from loving folks. Because who they are. You can try. But you can't stop them. Because you see, it is their new nature in Christ Jesus. Their new nature to be people of holiness. Holiness and purity and love and mercy and justice. I was a, a pastor in L.A. for a long time. I was on staff there for six and a half years. Then I pastored there for 14 and a half. So I was over 20 years, 21 years in the downtown, near downtown L.A. And uh, as I was pastoring there, we, uh, there were so many needs that we decided we'd start a nonprofit. We called it the P.F. Brzee Foundation. Brzee was the founding church. The, first, the church that I pastored was the first church of the Nazarene, the founding church. And Brzee was the founder, so we had this Brzee Foundation that we established. And it was to uh, help us to provide different kinds of ministries and services to people who were in need in our community. And so we had a hospitality center for people who were homeless, we had a, a youth center that was for kids to get them out of gangs and alternative track. We had uh, um, health clinics for people who were uh, immigrants, uh, for a pediatrics unit, a, a homeless unit. Uh, we had community development, uh, and, and on and on. So it, it just kept developing. It, was, it got sort of out of control. And uh, it cost a lot of money. And I was the executive director of the Phineas Foundation in Los Angeles, along with pastoring First Church of the Nazarene. And uh, it developed so fast that at, at one point uh, we, we, were, we were in debt. Like quite a bit. Like $100,000. 
About that time, I had the opportunity to, um, to uh, have lunch with a very, very wealthy woman who was somewhat interested in what we were doing. And um, so over lunch, her name was Naomi, she said, uh, well, Ron, tell me about what you're doing there in Los Angeles. So I explained a lot of all of this to you. And after a while, she seemed to nod appreciatively. And uh, she said, well, um, what is it you need? And I said, we really need, we need $100,000. And she said, well, let me think about it. I thought that was a good sign. She said, I'm going to go and talk to my attorney and my accountant, and I'll get back to you in a few days. So that's, that's great. Works for me. And so I sort of nervously waited by the phone for a couple days, and after, um, after two or three days, I hadn't heard from her. I thought I'd just check back in, you know, just to see what she was thinking. So I gave her a call, and I said, um, Naomi, Hi, Naomi, this is Ron. And she said, oh, hi, Ron. I thought it was good. And uh, uh, I said, well, did, did you have a, an opportunity to talk to your accountant and your attorney yet? And she said, oh, yeah, I did. That was good. She said, I think I can do 200. Long pause. And I said, would that be $200 or $200,000? <laughs> And she sort of chuckled, and she said, oh, 200000 And I said, that'd be fine. <laughs> Naomi had saved the day. Not only had she given us the money that we were in debt, she bails out of debt. Here was an extra $100,000 that was going to help us with our ministries to those in need in downtown L.A. I mean, we were so happy. We, we almost felt like we should name the church after her, or at least a bathroom or something. Name something <laughs> after her, you know. I mean, she had saved the day. About that time, I had a um, knock on the door from um, an attorney, identified himself, and I so wasn't quite so sure, you know, an attorney. And then uh, he said, um, the church has been named in an estate. I said, come right on in. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't Naomi. He said, um, I don't know if you remember, and I did, the homeless man who lived in the van that was often parked across, uh, in the street across from the church, George. I said, oh, yeah, sure. Well, he said, as you may know, George died, and he named the church in his estate. George had more money than he realized, and he left the church $1,000. I thought, wow. I thanked him, and the attorney started to get up and leave, and then he, he said, oh, there's, there's one more thing that uh, George wanted me to tell you. He said, before George died, he said, to be sure and tell the pastor that there wasn't anybody in his whole life who loved him like the people from the church. And I thought, oh, this is a good day. About that time, I knocked on the door. And it was uh, Vernon. Vernon was homeless. 
Now, George is homeless, but Vernon, you know, George is sort of upper-class homeless. He had a van to live in. Vernon is lower-class homeless. Uh, you know, borderline mentally ill, a long beard, hair, mucus, smelly, living in places that, you know, not the kind of person that, and it's Vernon. And so I say, oh, Vernon, hi. Uh, man, what is it that I can do for you? And uh, Vernon stepped back and he said, Oh, Pastor, I didn't come asking for anything today. He said, I, I, just, uh, I brought my offering. a church offering envelope. 27 cents. And I thought, Oh, Lord, forgive me. Because I want to name a building after Naomi. But I'm not quite so sure that I want to spend any time with Vernon. And yet, I was privileged to be part of a church that loved people. Part of a community that welcomed those folks in so that our organist, who was really very good, was a homeless man. There were people on the church board and on staff who had come from programs in the mission. And sometimes I'd look out and the one collecting the offering, the head usher today, had spent the last 15 years in jail for petty theft, and he's collecting the offering. <laughs> and I was privileged to be part of a fellowship of believers that loved. You just can't stop those Christians from loving folks. You see, it's who they are in their new nature in Christ Jesus. You just can't stop them. You can try, but you can't stop them. Um, a few years ago, some of you know, in fact, some of you may be closer to this situation than I am, but in 1994, there was a genocide in Rwanda. And in a period of about three months, there were approximately 800,000 people who died in one of the worst tragedies of the last century. Uh, perhaps you know Simon Pierre, who's the district superintendent in Rwanda. I've had an opportunity to get to know him some and ask him a little bit about some of his experiences there, leading the church in a place like Rwanda, some of the challenges. And he talked a little bit about um, a, a reconciliation conference, different things that they did in Rwanda. There were the Hutus and the Tutsis and how they formed a choir out of the different churches from their district, of both Hutus and Tutsis, who had been killing each other. And they went around the country and they sang about the love of God, and they were one together, the Hutus and the Tutsis. And they, um, they would um, all be together as one district. And it was a great example of reconciliation at a time when a country was hopelessly divided. And five years after the genocide, they had a reconciliation conference that they sponsored. People who were Hutus and Tutsis gathered them together. 
And one of those who presented at that conference was a young man named Frederick. I have his part of his presentation. Listen to these words. My name is Frederick. I'm 23 years old. Genocide happened when I was just a boy. Even though I belong to the tribe whose people participated in murdering their fellow human beings, the Hutus, I didn't participate myself. In 1998, four years after the genocide, there were still mass killings of people who were carried out by malicious killers. This time the target group was the Hutus, who they thought and believed were loyal to the Tutsis. We were in a public commuter minibus. It was stopped. They ordered all the people to get out of the bus. They pushed us into a nearby bush where they murdered all the Tutsis who were with us. They cut off my two hands, accusing me of being a servant of the Tutsis. It took me eight hours before I was taken to the hospital, naked. I had lost a lot of blood. By the grace of the Lord, I survived. I was treated, but the fact remains that I can't do anything with my hands. I kept on wondering if God can forgive the enemies who cut off my two hands. What had I done to deserve this punishment? Later on, after great consideration of the power of God who spared my life at the time when my hands were being cut off, I decided with the help of the Holy Spirit to forgive those who made me a disabled person. At this moment, I am ruled by the grace of God. I thank him for calling me to be the servant he anointed to preach the message of hope and forgiveness. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. You just can't stop those Christians from loving folks. You can try, but you can't. You see, it's their new nature in Christ Jesus. It's who they have become in Christ. As God in Christ, through the Spirit, walks with us in this time of in-between, this wilderness, where there can be terrible tragedy, what we know is that God has, for not, has not forsaken us, that God loves us, God is here with us, that God is preparing us, gathering us together, making us his own, his own holy people, bearing not only his name in the world, but also his character in the world, his character of holy purity, his character of holy love, of holy mercy, of holy justice. And he just can't stop those Christians from loving folks. You can try, but you can't stop them. Jesus, at the end of Matthew 5, says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Wow, these are heavy words. If you are to be perfect, that's, boy, that's talking about somebody else. You know, you read that passage, you think, well, that can't apply to me. So that's got to be somebody else. Maybe that's President McGee or somebody like that, but it's not me, so, right? 
So here we are in this situation where we read this passage and we go, ah, let's, let's, let's move on to the next chapter. But there it is. Therefore you are to be perfect. Perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And when we read that passage, we see that it especially means perfect in love. But even that, how are we going to be perfect in love? How are we going to live up to that? It's interesting in that passage, it says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you in order that you may... And this is sort of a word that the whole passage turns on. In order that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. That word be, that little word be... It doesn't mean in order that you should really try hard to somehow become. That word be there in that passage means in order that it will be discovered about you, who you are in your essential character, that the truth will be found out. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, in order that the truth about you will be discovered. You see, when we love... When we love, we are discovered. We are found out. It's not as though this is something that we're really sort of having to really work hard at. Well, there's probably some effort involved. But it's the Holy Spirit who comes alongside us and is changing us and making us, giving us the very character of a holy God. A God who loves, a God who's merciful, a God who's justice, a God who's pure. And you just can't stop those Christians from loving folks because it's who they are. It's in their DNA. You can try, but you can't stop them. You can try, but you can't stop those Christians from loving folks. Because it is now who they are in Christ Jesus. At the end of this next month, I'm going to be joining some of the faculty here and people from around the world. We're going to go to South Africa for the third global theology conference in the Church of the Nazarene. We'll be there for a week. The first global theology conference was in Guatemala. It's been my privilege to be part of the planning of these global theology conferences. We went to Guatemala. We decided that since the 300 of us who were going to be there were in this city that had this crime rate, which was through the roof, an unemployment rate of 50%, that we should not just have a theology conference in Guatemala City. If we were going to be there, somehow we needed to have some kind of presence. So we. So we took an offering, and the 300 of us raised about $11,000, and we, I got to be part of the group that distributed the money to six different compassion ministry centers in Guatemala City. One of those that we went to was an interesting place. In the middle of Guatemala City is this great, big, huge ravine, valley. It's the city dump. It's in the middle of Guatemala City. It's like perhaps any other dump, you know what a dump sort of looks like. It's all this trash and garbage and it's the, the smoke that's burning. Actually, it sort of reminds you of the New Testament description of hell, of Gehenna, the, the trash dump outside the city gates that's perpetually burning. But you know what a dump smells like and looks like and, you know, it's burning. The difference about this garbage dump was, well, you know, as the trucks went down and turned around and unloaded their garbage, there were people, scores of people, hundreds, actually thousands, who were living in 
to dump. And as each truckload would turn around and dump its garbage, here were people who were scrambling into the heap of garbage to find something they could eat, something they could take home to their family, something they could sell. And we turned around, and here, as we were on the bluff looking down, here is Potter's house. And we had an opportunity to talk to the director, the founder, that provided a safe place, medical care, education. They were, that year, they were providing their first scholarships to, to children who'd come up to their school and now were being scholarshiped to go on to college. And so we had a chance to talk to the director. We said, so, tell us why you're here. Well, she said, I was trained as a clinician, a, a therapist. And every day I would have to walk past the dump in order to, uh, to get to my office. And it smelled bad and looked bad. And, you know, I was one of the people who was sort of like part of the business association. And I'm a Christian, and so as I would go by, I would pray, and most of my prayers were complaints to God about this dump and the people who lived here. And as I was praying, I, uh, I began to pray, Lord, somebody ought to do something about this. <laughs> and then, as I was praying one day and saying, Lord, somebody ought to do something about this, the Lord said, that would be you. And I closed my business, my, my, my office, I opened Potter's house. That would be you. You just can't stop those Christians from loving folks. You can try. But you see, it's who they are. It's their new nature in Christ Jesus. New creation. For the very holiness of God and purity and love and mercy and justice is the character of the people of God as we give witness to God and the coming kingdom in our lives. You just can't stop those Christians from loving them. Christ died. Christ rose. Christ is coming again. Already. Not yet. Already. Not yet. Already. Not yet. Grace and peace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may we be a people, may we be a community that when others look at ENC, they say, those ENC students, they can't help but loving people. May we truly be a community that loves and cares for others. May we truly be a community, Lord, that loves and cares for our roommates, for those on our floors, for those in our classes, 
for our professors and staff, for those in the city of Quincy and Boston and around the world, may we truly be a community that loves people. I plead with you, Lord, that we be that type of community by your power through the Holy Spirit.